You guys ready? Because here it comes. Here comes the revelation of the Old Testament. We've finally gotten there in chapter 7. So hold on to your hats. The first part's good. The second part's great. Well, the first part's great. The second part's greater. I don't know. As we get now to chapter 7, if you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7 tonight, we're just going to take the first uh, eight verses. It's going to take us three weeks to get through this chapter um, because it's meaty. And it is, again, as I said at the beginning of this study, it is through the book of Daniel that we get so much insight into the book of Revelation. And tonight is one of those passages that there is just this depth of, uh, of a picture of you and reminds you when this was written as compared to the book of Revelation. They were written nearly 600 years apart. And so as we get to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation penned by the great apostle John as he's imprisoned in the island of Patmos for the word of his testimony. And so as he authors the book of Revelation, he doesn't have the book of Daniel with him. He's not sitting around with the book of Daniel going, oh, well, I better say this, and I need to say that, and i got to tie this in some way. This is amazing stuff. And so as we get to chapter 7, we begin the really deeply prophetic part of the book of Daniel. I want to also remind you that as we get to chapter 7, uh, if you happen to have a New Living Translation, it, it begins uh, with the word before. And so we're now having a flashback. So we are going to go from the last chapter, which Daniel was roughly 81, 82 years old, this chapter is going back, and you'll see it very clearly even in the New King James or in the King James in the first year of King Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. And so we're going backwards chronologically back to a time that Daniel had this dream which produced visions, and these visions were directly tied to what we've already seen in chapter 2 and will be even further directly tied to the book of Revelation. And so tonight, uh, the four beasts... And it's just an amazing time in God's Word. And it's an amazing time to be in this particular part of the book of Daniel. Because as these great world empires, the good thing, again, as I've shared with you a number of times, the book uh, basically interprets itself largely. And so we actually find in the 15th verse of chapter 7 that there's an interpretation of this dream as well. And so that we know uh, that these beasts are kings and they are kingdoms. And so we, we know what they are and who they are. It's interpreted for us. And so all we're left to do is fill in a little bit of detail. And so it becomes very, very easy to do. And us looking back on it now, we can see that, that there is exactly one of these kingdoms left, and there's one real ruler left to come on the scene. Uh, everything else has already transpired in world history, and so we're really waiting uh, for a very specific point in time in history uh, that we may see in our lifetime, that we may well wake up one morning and go, whoa, Israel has bombed Iran, Iran has responded, Russia has come alongside, and all of the things that we see in the book of Ezekiel that we studied uh, previously are, are beginning to unfold before our eyes, and this last world kingdom will come on the scene. And so tonight we begin that journey. We'll be continuing chapter 7 for three weeks. Uh, it's going to take us a while to get through the rest of the book of Daniel because it is meaty. Amen? So get ready. Hang on to your hats. 
we're going to start talking about the European Union and all those kind of good things now. So those of you that have been waiting, the time is here. The time is now. And you are in it. Okay? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we don't want to sensationalize this. It speaks for itself. But Lord, as, as we sit here in the year 2012 and we, we gaze at the horizon of human history, as we look out over time, seeing that you have been faithful to your word thus far and that what you have spoken has come true, uh, we have no doubt that what you have spoken that has not yet occurred will also come true. And so, God, we know that we're, we're in those days that you designated as the last or we don't know how much time we have, whether it be a few more nanoseconds or, Lord, it might be a, a week, a month, a year or two or ten. We don't know. But we do know that your word is very clear. And so, God, we pray that you would speak to us through it. Bless us as we study it. Uh, give us a hunger for it. Lord, we pray that your word would become uh, just that, that source of life and godliness to us that it should be, that it would uh, join in that in that part of our growth that is spiritual. And so, God, we pray that you bless us. Anoint your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so here he's going to have some dreams and visions. He's flashing back. What's also going to interestingly happen, as I shared with you when we began this book, about halfway through this chapter, will end the section that was written in Aramaic. And it's going to go back to Hebrew. There's an interesting reason that I believe that that happens. Because the very last days, the time that is described as the time of the, the Antichrist, the tribulation of days, um, you ain't going to be here, okay, if you believe in Jesus Christ. But the Jewish people will, because they will have not yet received their Messiah. And so it's interesting to me that the shift happens in this chapter where we see the world empires rise, the world empires fall, and this crazy guy, the little horn that pops out of the tin, uh, comes on the scene. And so... Uh, tonight we're going to be introduced to uh, a, a really, really bad guy, the little horn, and a really, really good guy, the son of man. And, and so as we, as we look at this chapter and as we, we begin to digest it, uh, this chapter, Daniel's now back to about 56, 60 years old, something like that. Um, he, he was an active official in Belshazzar's court. He, the king uh, might have retired the interpreter of, of dreams and visions from uh, doing his active role in that role, but he was still active because God was still active. And I think it's important for us to remember, just because God is, is allowing time to, to pass, God is being long-suffering, he's being kind, it doesn't mean that his plans are not going to come to fruition. One of the problems with mankind in general is that when, when we don't get things right here, right now, we have a tendency to think, well, we misunderstood it, or perhaps it's not going to happen at all, or maybe it was just a dream on our part, those types of things. And yet, uh, with this particular vision, with this particular dream, as we get through it, um, we are going to be part of that very last days. We are, we are living in that time that's described here. And so uh, Daniel is going to unfold this for us. Uh, each of these four beasts that we're going to see tonight uh, correspond to the four parts of that image that you remember back in chapter 2, the great image that was seen there, the giant sculpture that had the head of gold that Scripture says was, in fact, King Nebuchadnezzar. And so we, we are going to now have this vision uh, further have some details placed upon it. 
Uh, the vision in heaven unveils the king of, guess what, an everlasting kingdom. Of course, we know who that is. Amen? We know him as the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am, the savior God, the lion of the tribe of Judah. We, we know who he is. Uh, at this time, it was prophetically speaking forward in world history, uh, the better part of 600 years. And so there would be one who would come, who would fulfill all of what the scriptures would say about the Messiah. And, and he would furthermore take those very precise, roughly 25 extremely precision uh, things that were said about the Messiah and fulfill them in one 24-hour literal day. And as I've shared with you before, the mathematical probabilities of these things are astronomical. They're, they're simply not even possible. I shared with you the work of Dr. Stoner, professor of mathematics at Westmont University, as he, he set out to try and give us a visual uh, of one man being born at any point in time, taking the 25 top prophecies of the Messiah, the King of Glory, coming on one specific day and dying for the sins of the world, those things that would happen in 24 hours that are laid out in Scripture. The mathematic probability, the number that he came up with, if you turned it into into silver dollars and placed them over the state of Texas, they would be one foot deep. You would have to paint one of those silver dollars red, toss them into the state of Texas, then blindfold somebody and have them wander around the state of Texas. The odds of them picking up that one red silver dollar are the same as one man fulfilling those 25 prophetic, just the 25 prophetic windows that Jesus filled. This book tells us about that Messiah. It speaks to some of those prophetic events. And so it's an incredibly insightful book. By the time we get to chapter 9, we're going to find the, the day that Jesus would come into Jerusalem is given in the book of Daniel. So as we look at this particular chapter, open up your ears, Look with your eyes, see with everything within you uh, what the Spirit would have to say. It's a panorama of human history uh, from Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom to the Messiah's kingdom to the completion of the Messiah's kingdom, which hasn't happened yet, by the way. If you hadn't noticed, the world isn't exactly getting really good right now. And in fact, when you look at the world, uh, it, it's monumentally evil in most of its aspects. We have a lot of good things that happen. But the world itself is not a friendly place. It's not a place that we look at and go, man, I'm just overjoyed. I think world peace is going to happen in my time. I don't believe world peace is going to happen in my time. I believe that ultimately the Prince of Peace is going to come back and world peace is going to happen. That's what's going to occur. And so tonight, the vision, the dream, the first three beasts, I would also remind you that often with Scripture, and this will just give you a couple of things to look at and study at your leisure. The book of Kings is a record of history from man's perspective. The book of Chronicles, both of those, are a record of history from God's perspective. Everybody understand the difference of those two? One is man looking up at God's understanding, and the other is God looking down. They're two very different perspectives. And so when you look at chapter 2, which we've already read here in the book of Daniel, that is from man's perspective. Now as we get to chapter 7, this is God's perspective. This is what God sees as he, as he looks out across human history. And so verse 1 here in Daniel 7, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head, 
while he was in his bed. And so he, he begins to see these things visually after having had a dream. Remember what I said about dreams happen when you're asleep, visions happen when you're awake. Normally the two kind of coincide one with another. You probably have had this in, in process in your own life. You'll have a dream at night, and then you wake up during the day, and during the pondering of that, you actually have some kind of vision of that same thing happening. And so Daniel is, is seeing these things as if they're projected into his mind, um, they're, you know, he's got the plasma screen of God going on, and he's seeing these things. And then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. And so the dream happens at night. The visions happen during the day. It is so vivid, he is actually able to sit down and write these things out. That means it was very real to him. Now, I don't know how many dreams that you have that you can remember. Some people don't remember their dreams at all. Some people remember parts of them. Some people can remember a few details. But this is so vivid that the whole thing ends up getting written down. God wanted him to preserve this for us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And at first, when you read these words, it's kind of like the what, huh, of who? The why, wherefore, and when is that I don't get it. Until we begin to unveil what has already been said, until we look at the rest of what Scripture says, these things can be somewhat confusing. Hopefully we'll unravel these things tonight. And four great beasts came up out from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. And I watched, and circle that phrase, I watched. You're going to see it ten times in this chapter. I watched, I saw It was very apparent to me. In essence, the phrase actually means I was on guard. I was on watch. I was waiting for the details to to unfold. The picture is that he's been assigned the night duty, and these are the things that he saw. And I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, and it was raised up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus to it, Arise and devour much flesh. And after this, I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and this beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And so the third beast. And you'll notice the phrase, and it was like. It's giving us a clue here. In other words, it isn't actually a beast. It was like the beast. It was something that was equivalent to, but very different from. And so we use the word symbolic. We would use the word uh, typological. In other words, it was something that he saw that was real, that had a meaning meaning that was far uh, surpassing what he actually saw. And so after this, verse 7 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, and terrible, exceedingly strong, and it had huge iron teeth, and it was devouring and breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. 
It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And while I was considering the horns, there was another horn, a little one, coming from among them, from the other horns, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were the eyes like man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, I don't know about you, if I actually had this dream, I would be seriously freaked out. You like you wake up in the morning, you're just like, man, what in the world was that? I'm seeing flying lions and leopards, and I've got a great bear in here, and I've got this ten-horned beast with multiple heads. It's just like it's like something from the Sci-Fi Channel. Amen. And so Daniel says, in the vision I looked up, there are visions within a dream that basically link this back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream of dreams, and so this these dreams are all connected. The, the, the picture here is that the prophet Daniel was so tapped into the, the Spirit's work in the world at that time, though he was not yet saved per se because Jesus hadn't come, the Holy Spirit hadn't been given, but the Holy Spirit was in the world, and so the Holy Spirit influencing the world, influencing people, causing knowledge to come about, those types of things. Uh, literally, he's watching, he's looking, and because he's watching and he's looking, and remember this, God's not going to show you stuff if you're not watching and looking. If you're just kind of blithely going about life, just like, oh, whatever, you're, you're not going to hear a lot from God. It's that simple. Daniel was watching. He wanted to see what God had to, to show him. He wanted to hear what God had to say. It's an important part of what you and I would say is our general prayer life, but it's also that thought life. It's like, Lord, what do you want me to know? What are you trying to show me? I want to understand these things. And so let's pull this dream apart a little bit as we go through these component parts. So the first thing that we see here is these four winds of heaven. What are they? Well, what's being said, the four winds of heaven? Because the Jews held that uh, the winds came from the north, the south, the east, and the west. Those were favorable. And anything that did not come from those four directions, those were bad. So if the wind came from the west or the east or the north or the south, that was good. God did that. It was providential. Anything that came from any other direction, bad thing. They would call that a bad wind was blowing. And, and so it appears that these winds are, are, are that type of thing. But it goes on further because a lot of people look at these winds as maybe there's something negative. And I happen to believe that as we're going to see here, uh, that this is the, the work of God. And things that we often see that God does that we would call negative are actually God's hands at work. Amen? We see this all the time in life. There are things that circumstantially we can't figure out how it is that perhaps, you know, getting uh, some type of a sickness or a disease is actually going to ultimately be the hand of God. But he does that all the time. He has things that happen in this world. And so if you remember uh, for our struggle, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 says that, uh, is not against flesh and blood, against, but it is against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Uh, we were reminded in the book of Revelation in chapter 7 that the four winds of earth were, were literal or symbolic, but they represented the destructive forces of both God and, and evil forces. And so God himself has control of them. Evil forces have control of them. I don't think it's wise to just simply say it's one or the other. But we know this. 
the world's stirring, the water's stirring, the sea is stirring, and things are happening. And, and so sometimes the, the picture that I get from this is we need to be careful not to miss what's actually happening for trying to figure out how it's happening. And in this case, the Lord is stirring up the world. Uh, we, we see the same process in Jeremiah chapter 49 in, in the, the, the Lord coming against Elam. The four winds, the four corners of the heavens, he scatters the Elam to the four corners of the world. Those types of things happening. And so from Zechariah, from Matthew, we just know that God's at work. Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones, the winds came and blew life into the children of Israel. So good, bad, doesn't really matter. But what we know is God's at work. That's what he's saying. God's at work. And so God is at work in these things. And here's why this is important. Because all of these kingdoms are essentially evil. Amen? Every last one of them. All of them are not good. If you don't remember that God is still at work, even when evil reigns, then you think God isn't available or God isn't there or God doesn't care. And so what he's saying is, by giving us this picture, is that I'm still around. The wind's blowing. The winds may change. The winds at times, you may not be able to discern where they're coming from or who's controlling them, but I'm still at work in the world. And so he says to us, I got my hands on this. I have my hands all over it. Notice that it says in verses 6 and 7, the phrase, after that, I believe these things are sequential. And so whether God is directly causing them to come to pass or whether he's adding some details uh, through the lives of these kings and kingdoms, uh, the Lord is at work. The next thing that we see is the great sea. Interesting again, you can take it literally, and if you looked at it literally, the Mediterranean was known as the Great Sea. But I think there's a, there's, a, there's a problem with looking at all of this and just simply assigning the four winds are north, south, east, and west. And the Great Sea is the Mediterranean. Because you mix all of those things together and you start to have a very small picture. And this is not a very small picture. This is a very big picture. Matter of fact, it's a picture of all humanity. It's a picture of the entire world. It's not just a picture of a little tiny local event that happened on the Mediterranean Sea with some wind blowing. This is a picture of all of humankind over a period of what will now be about two and a half to three thousand years that God is saying, I'm at work in all of this and I'm bringing forth kings and kingdoms and I allow them to exist for a period of time. Remember what we've already seen. I, the Lord God, raise up kings and kingdoms. So whether he causes them directly or he allows them, God is in the midst of these various kingdoms. And so geographically, this, this prophecy is centered around Palestine, which certainly sits on the banks of the Mediterranean. But unfortunately, unlike the, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian empires, those were not situated on the Mediterranean Sea. So I think there's a bigger sea that's in view here. Um, during the history of the Babylonian Empire, there were a number of different legends about the sea. And the sea was, interestingly enough, because if you look where Iraq is right now, that's basically Mesopotamia, which was modern-day uh, the Babylonian Empire. If, you, if we were to look at it in modern times, that's basically Iraq. It's part of Turkey. If you look at that, you would go, there isn't a sea anywhere near it. 
It's dry land. It's dirt. But we use uh, this phrase exactly the way I believe it's intended in this passage. We say things like, there was a sea of people at Disneyland. Amen? That, I believe, is the picture that's being brought forth here. Daniel's speaking something to us. He's saying to us, the Lord is speaking out of this, that out of the raging wind and the surface of this sea of humanity will come these kingdoms. In other words, as the world gets worked up, as these kingdoms come to be, as they raise up and go down, it will be as if it were a tempest tossed on a great sea. They're they're going to affect all that's in the water. When a wind blows across the water, it affects the whole sea. Amen? If you don't understand that, let me give you a little, little illustration that you can all understand. Remember the tsunami in Japan? We just had the debris from that land on the west coast of the United States just a few months ago. Amen? What got it here? Mostly wind. It was blown all the way from Japan clear over to California, Oregon, and Washington. And so the wind stirs up the water. You may not even be able to see its effect, but the wind on the face of the water brings up this churning. I'll give you a passage you can look at later in Isaiah 17 there in verses 12 and 13. And it says, Oh, the raging of many nations, for they rage like a raging sea. And so it's this exact analogy. Oh, the uproar of the peoples, for they roar like the roaring of great waters. And although the people roar like the surging waters, when he rebukes them, they flee away, driven before the wind like chaff on the hills, like a tumbleweed before the gale. And so it's a picture of humanity. It's a picture for us to look at and we go, wow, this is people. We see it again in Revelation chapter 17. And again, just mark these things down. We don't have time for everybody to flip through to them. Verses 15 and 16, it says, The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. It's not a literal beast rising up out of a literal ocean. It is a beast coming out of the sea of humanity that says, Here I am. And then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So it's actually interpreted for us in the book of Revelation. It's actually said to be people. And so the, the sea is, is, in essence, the sea of humanity. That everlasting kingdom that will come is that picture that we get in Revelation chapter 21. For I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I believe that that is speaking of the exact same process that's in play here. That ultimately God's going to recreate everything. He's going to make it new. And that new sea of people will also be the beloved, the redeemed of the Lord, the saved. There will be no sea that this type of sea represents. And so we move on now to the, to the four beasts. And it says in verse 4, For the first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. And I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and it had a man's heart given to it. You remember the dream that we saw in chapter 2? It pictures those bab- the, the, in essence, the, the great world empires. 
and, and it was designated by a statue at that point in time. Looking back on human history, we know that all of those things came to pass. We also know that in chapter 2, we were told that those things represented kings and kingdoms. So we know the same thing applies here. The rule of thumb for proper biblical interpretation is the first time something occurs. It defines whatever follows it unless there is a change that's clear. And so we know these kings and kingdoms are one and the same. So in succession, those are the kingdoms of Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome. We've already seen those in chapter 2. Amen? So the four winds of heaven first churn up the great sea, and out of it come four beasts. The sea is the sea of humanity. Amen? That sea of humanity is going to spit up four beasts. We know because when we actually get to chapter to the 15th verse, we're going to find out that these are kings and kingdoms, same thing. So out of that sea of humanity comes Four kings is the best way to look at it. And those four kings will have four kingdoms. And those four kingdoms will be represented by these characteristics that are now these animals that we see here. It basically, it's a legal. It's a lion-eagle thing. It's a, it's part lion, part eagle. I don't know how you say it, but it's a lion-eagle. Okay, It's a winged lion. Interestingly enough, when you go to Babylonian history, specifically when you go to Babylonian archaeology, you're going to find that one of the greatest symbols that existed throughout all of the Babylonian Empire was, guess what? A winged lion. It was the symbol of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And in fact, on the Nabonidus Chronicles, those tablets that I shared with you when we were in chapter 2, um, you're going to find those little tiny winged lions on the borders of it. And so they were known as a winged empire that was that had the ferociousness of a lion. Uh, on the Mesopotamian temples, palaces, Nebuchadnezzar actually compared himself uh, to a lion and his armies to eagles, and so does the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 4, uh, speaking of Babylon, a lion has come out of his lair, a destroyer of nations has set out, he has left his palace to lay waste to your land. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitant. And so the Bible itself tells us that this winged lion was actually Babylon. Ezekiel chapter 17 gives us very much uh, the same picture. A great eagle with powerful wings and feathers and full plumage, it says there. And so it, it, it begins to give us this picture that this was actually King Nebuchadnezzar. The empire was Babylon, the first beast uh, in essence, is the guy that we've already seen in King Nebuchadnezzar. And so the second beast begins in verse 5. And there was before me a second beast, which looked like a bear. And notice circle looked like. Doesn't say it was. Doesn't say it is. Doesn't say it was a bear who kind of acted human-like. It's not the flip side of this. It says it looked like a bear. So again, it's a vision. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth. Between its teeth, it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. And so what empire followed, because we know, because we've already studied chapter 2, what empire follows next? It's the empire of Media Persia, right? Cyrus the Mede comes in. Uh, basically, this is an apt description of the military rule under Silas, or Cyrus and Shambles, his, his assistant. And so as these two men got together, uh, they represented, uh, in essence, Xerxes, who was the actual ruler at the time, uh, probably two and a half million men fighting against the Grecian Empire. And so there were this huge 
lumbering thing that was known in their battle strategy for just simply overwhelming the enemy. Let me help you understand how that translates to a bear. If you've ever seen a large grizzly bear, you don't have to worry about it moving very fast because it can just flat eat you. It just kind of like, okay, get out of the way or the bear wins. And so Media Persia was like that. In sheer raw numbers, they simply overcame the enemy because there wasn't anything the enemy could do. You were just simply overrun by them. Uh, The bear is much less majestic than the lion or the eagle, but in brute power, the bear wins. Have you ever seen a picture of a Kodiak grizzly? They can weigh 2,400 pounds. They can stand 12 and a half feet tall. They're a formidable foe. Uh, They have claws that are 6 to 10 inches long. I mean, this is a giant beast. And so it gives us this picture uh, that I will also tell you is a picture that that is one that we get really for for part of the the character, if you will, of the Antichrist. Uh, Persia was definitely the more powerful of these two nations. Uh, That would be the higher side of the bear. Uh, The media media area, the Asia Minor part of it, was the lesser part. And so it was kind of this lopsided uh, alignment of a lumbering beast that basically would come and and swallow up the nations as it moved across uh, human history. And so we go to the third beast. And after this, so you can see, The reason that that's there, remember, this is polysyndetic. These things are added one to another. You take one, and after that happens, the next one happens, and after that, the next one happens. It's saying they're in succession. Very easy to understand when you look at it correctly. After this, I looked, and there was another, and it was like a leopard, which had wings on had four wings like a bird on his back, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This third beast is very clearly Greece. In fact, their symbol was a, guess what, a winged leopard. You can find it throughout all their archaeological uh, history. Uh, swiftness was its characteristic. Such speed and swiftness was unprecedented in the time, so in the time during uh, warfare during that day. And so you have the media Persian Empire, which by raw numbers, like a lumbering bear, would come into a region. They would simply outnumber their foe and consume them. Whereas Greece, specifically under Alexander the Great, uh, moved with tremendous swiftness. In fact, Josephus and other writers of the time said that they moved so quickly that most of the time cities would simply surrender rather than fight because they were overwhelmed in an instant. And in fact, if you read the book, The Antiquities of the Jews, uh, there's only one exception in all of the land of Palestine, and that was the city, the coastal city of Tyre, that didn't surrender to Alexander the Great because they got so, there so quickly, they moved so swiftly, they were famous for using horses and archery. And so they just flew in, overwhelmed, boom, done. So the Grecian Empire. And then we finally get to this fourth beast, and we'll spend the rest of this evening uh, on this last beast. And so you have the Babylonian Empire, the Media Persian Empire, and the Grecian Empire. They had all three done exactly as this picture indicates. The fourth beast we've partially seen. And so it says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, and exceedingly strong. And of course, as we go back to the vision in chapter 2, we can begin to say, oh, this is the Roman Empire. 
because the Roman Empire existed for a very, very, very long time. Amen? Extremely strong, lasted a long time. It was known as the Empire of Iron, by the way. Um, they were, that's, in essence, they, they changed the face of battle forever because they used iron swords, which would break bronze swords because bronze is very brittle. They would cut through those things. No one could stand in their path because simply they were armed with iron implements, iron spear tips. All of those things could be uh, used over and over again. They could be recycled. You could take and melt them down and use them over again. And so dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. It lasted the kingdom, the Roman Empire, uh, really to some degree still exists today. But even, at, even in its low point, it lasted about a thousand years. And so it had huge iron teeth. It was devouring and breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. And if you remember the, the history of the Roman Empire, and again, there's all kinds of historical books that you can read to verify these things. Uh, simply do a Google search of the Roman Empire. You'll find out that the, these things are exactly true. The Roman Empire was famous for, in essence, absorbing cultures. It would trample them, it would conquer them, and it would absorb them. Basically, Rome would, wherever Rome went, that's where Rome was. And so to give you an example of that, if you travel to Great Britain, you go north until you get to Scotland, you're going to find Hadrian's Wall. Hadrian's Wall still exists to this day. You can walk along it. That was the northern extent of the Roman Empire. To give you an idea how far that is, that's 5,000 miles from Rome. That's a long ways from Rome. The Roman Empire was huge, and wherever it went, it absorbed that culture. It did not destroy that culture. It subjugated that culture. And that culture, in essence, was absorbed into the Roman Empire, and simply Roman rule was placed over it. That was the condition of Palestine in the time of Jesus, was it not? There was a Roman, there was in essence a Roman procurator that lived there, and Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor, amen? And so, breaking it to pieces, trampling the residue with its feet, it was different from all the other beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. And it was, I was considering the horns, and there was a, another horn, a little one, coming from among them. And so it begins to give this picture of world history that has not yet been fulfilled, but is on our radar screen even today. Coming from up among them, and before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were the eyes of man, in pompous words, speaking those things. And I want to remind you that nothing in nature compares to this beast. You might have been able to get by with a winged lion or kind of a lumbering bear, but this one, not so much. This is one of those pictures that's, okay, we got to figure out what this is. Uh, the beast represents a leopard that had the feet like those of a bear, the mouth of a lion. The dragon gives, we see in Revelation 13 that there's going to be a world power that comes along at the end that's going to have components of all of these things. Every last bit of man's human effort to, to try and outdo God is going to get unveiled in the end times. And so you're going to have lumbering armies, you're going to have swift armies. You're going to have armies that consume and absorb. 
You're, you're going to have, in essence, all of these things. So the four heads are all four of the previous world empires, all put together. It represents, in essence, the sum and total uh, of humankind's ability to move and rule and conquer and all those things from Babylon all the way to the kingdom age. So this last beast, in essence, is a culmination of all of the world empires. Roman Empire followed the Greek Empire. It boasted that it didn't destroy cultures, but just simply uh, subjugated them. But it did absolutely crush and devour its victims. Amen? If you don't believe that, all you need to do is study a little Roman history. You'll find out that you were a Roman. You were no longer a citizen of, of Britain. You were no longer an Anglo. You were no longer a Saxon. You were no longer a Gaul. You were a Roman. And if you weren't a Roman, you got trampled. You got killed. You were put to death. You were very heavy-handed in the way they did that. But they were able to, in essence, save a lot of the culture of the lands. They just simply absorbed it. Exceedingly power, powerful. And what we begin to see here in this fourth beast is, is how the enemy, Satan, works in this world. He can't create anything, so what he does is he takes what exists and he perverts it. He, he uses it for his plans and his practices and his purposes. And isn't it interesting that we're having a cultural revival in the world today? To where there's, there's this focus, in essence, on ethnicity and lineage and heritage. And in fact, there is a very interesting thing going on in Iran right now, and a very interesting thing going on in Iraq right now, and a very interesting thing that's always been going on in Greece, and a very interesting thing happening in all of the European Union, and that is the Iranians identify themselves as Persians. Those who live in Iraq identify themselves as Babylonians or Chaldeans. Those who are in Greece, they've always called themselves Greeks. Okay, They've never stopped calling themselves Greeks. Greeks are Greeks. Matter of fact, you can't be a Greek unless you're adopted as a Greek. I am an adopted Greek. Leanne adopted me. She's Greek, so I'm now part Greek. But the Roman Empire, because of its scope, never actually completely disappeared. And so you see evidences of the Roman Empire specifically, specifically through the Roman Catholic Church. Before I go any further, I am not condemning outright the Roman Catholic Church and every Catholic. But I am telling you that there's only one way that you can see this whole thing, and that is the sphere of influence that is, in essence, the Roman Catholic part of the world that's intensely Roman Catholic, which is basically all of Asia Minor and all of Europe, which is now bound by the EU, that is the predominant religion of that region, and it's directly tied back to the old Roman Empire. And its headquarters are still in, guess what city? Uh, Rome. The city on seven hills. And so the Roman Empire follows after all of these. And you remember back in chapter 2, the great iron teeth correspond to the iron legs of the image in that dream of dreams. And so we get, in essence, an unholy trinity. You have Satan himself, you have the Antichrist, and you have the rulers of the darkness of this age, those demonic forces that exist all over the world now starting to come to play. Um, Isaiah 27 gives us an interesting picture that kind of helps us understand that. In verse 1 it says there, in that day, and as I've shared with you before, when you see that phrase specifically in the Old Testament, 
almost without exception, in that day refers to the very last days, specifically the tribulation of days, specifically the final seven years uh, of mankind's attempt to triumph over God on this earth, which to you and I are still yet future. And it says, in that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent, and he will slay the monster of the sea. And so these things picture, remember how Satan first appeared in the garden? A sliding serpent. He just kind of slithered in there. Uh, a coiling serpent. That, that means it's kind of being deceptive, amen? When you see a coiled snake, it doesn't look like you can do, oh, look, it's cute, it's coiled up. I, I think that gives you a picture of the false prophet. Because the false prophet isn't going to seem like a bad guy at first. He's going to be the mouthpiece of his boss, the Antichrist, whose boss is Satan. And so these three serpents that are mentioned here in Isaiah 27, I believe, represent Satan, the false prophet, and the monster of the sea, which we find from the book of Revelation in chapter 13, the dragon that rose up out of the sea, I believe, is none other than the Antichrist himself. And so this beast you can begin to see is really all of humankind. And so this great sea of humanity will produce all of these component parts of mankind's final effort to overthrow God. Because Satan's plan, and again I've shared with you, I think the only reasonable explanation for Satan's continued attack on the world is that he has to believe his own lie. I don't think he's just doing it for spite. Some people say, well, he's just, you know, he's just evil, and so that's why he's doing it. I don't think so. I personally believe he still thinks he can win. And so he's pulling out all the stops. He's manipulating anything and everything he possibly can. And so it goes on. Let's take a little bit of a focus here on these horns. These, these horns, just as they are in the rest of, uh, of, the, of the scriptures, Luke says he has raised up a horn of salvation for us, the house of the servant David. The horn was also associated with the king. And so when the horn was raised, it was a sign that the king had something to say. And so these horns are representing the mouthpiece of the king and the kingdom. Uh, each, I believe, each horn of this fourth beast represents a future king, a future kingdom, and the ten horns are there present all at once, and therefore they are a ten nation or a ten region or a ten division uh, type of government that will one day exist. It's pretty clear that each of them has the ability to speak, but not all of them rule simultaneously. They are part of something larger than each one of them individually, and, of course, there's no period in human history that's ever gotten close to this except for right here, right now. Because this last empire is going to be comprised of Rome. It will come out of Rome. It will have an attachment to Rome. And so what will happen ultimately is that will rise up. It will begin to form. It will have a ten-nation confederacy that will come together in the very last days. And, of course, because we have the book of Revelation, we know exactly that that is what the book of Revelation says will happen. Uh, and so I believe we have a picture here of what we now call the European Union. And people immediately go, oh, well, you're still talking about the European Union. Don't you know there's 27 nations in there? Yes, I do know that. Matter of fact, there are another nine nations that are looking to get in right now, and probably will be in within the next couple of years. Croatia, Iceland, Macedonia, those nations are all trying to get into the EU. 
But it isn't saying that each one of these things are nations as we know them. And in fact, it isn't even saying that they're actually nations. It just says there's going to be ten mouthpieces. So I think that what you have to do is you've got to throw convention out the window. We used to try and figure out, okay, well, there's no... First, there was, there was three, and then there was five, and then there were seven, and then they got to ten, and everybody's going, oh, boy, there's ten nations in the European Union. It's going to happen next week. And then there was 11 and 12, and now there's 27. There's soon to be something like probably close to 40 eventually. So what's going on? What force in the world has more blinded the world to Christ than Europe? Think about it for a second. You have the Age of Enlightenment. You have the Reformation all coming from Europe. But Europe is in a decline morally, spiritually, and guess what now? Economically. What is the problem that the Antichrist comes to solve? He comes to solve a global religious problem. Well, that would be real easy if you got rid of all the Christians, right? Because we're kind of the dissenting view. So the rapture happens. The Christians are gone. What do you think is going to happen? But a a rise of those nations, which are still pseudo-religious, because the Antichrist is a religious figure. But right now, you know, we've got a lot of Muslims in, in Europe, and it isn't going so well. There's a lot of dissension in Europe. It's not going so well. So you've got to bring all those people together. I think I find it very interesting that this current pope is reaching out to the Muslim world and is having dialogue with imams, trying to figure out how the Catholic Church can join together in an interfaith dialogue. And in fact, in our own Southern California region, Claremont School of Theology just announced that they are putting together a program whereby they will take Islam, Christianity, Roman Catholicism, and Hinduism, and a number of other religions, and draw them together into an interfaith studies group so that we can figure out how to all coexist. I say to you that ultimately, if America is and remains a Christian nation, which in Jesus' name I pray we do, And then in the very last days, when that time is done and God's plan of grace has been unfolding for all that time, and mankind is sitting there going, hey, we've got uh, no need for God anymore. After all, we found a shiny thing on Mars today. I don't know if you guys read that article, the new Mars rover that's up there that we spent like $14 of our tax dollars on saw a shiny thing. Ooh, shiny. So they're going to drive for the next three weeks to the shiny thing only to find out it was a rock. Because they ain't find an E.T. He's not there. So Christianity is holding all this back. One of the things that it says about the body of Christ is that evil will remain until he who restrains is taken away. The Holy Spirit in you is the hope of glory. Amen? So in the church, Christianity, people who believe in God's word, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, once they're gone, what is to restrain this worldwide order from coming on the scene, these nations gathering together and those horns beginning to trumpet? And I think that this picture that we have here uh, is a picture of the EU, under the power, if you will, of the new Holy Roman Empire, under this Muslim, Catholic, 
Hindu conglomeration that now we can all just get along because we've thrown out all truth. Everything becomes existential. In essence, we just believe that everything has some value, and so we don't, you know, we don't want to offend anybody by telling anybody that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him, because that's what he said. We can all get one of President Obama's rings that I saw a picture of him wearing from back in the 80s that says, there is no God but Allah, and God has no son. Nice little picture, you might want to Google that one. See, we can all wear those things because the Christians aren't going to be around to worry about it. So this new Roman Empire rises up. It's interesting to me that Russia, I believe, will ultimately side with the Muslim nations, just exactly as Ezekiel 38 and 39 declares it will, because it will have no choice. You know why I think that? Because Europe is being overrun with Muslims currently. Britain is being overrun with Muslims currently because they're just like, well, you know, we don't want to be not inclusive. Family of God, there's a lot at stake in this election. Do I believe our current president is a Muslim? No, I don't. But I do believe he is a Muslim sympathizer, and I can prove that to you. Because not once since he's been president has he had a prayer gathering of Christians in the White House. Not once. But he has celebrated iftar dinners. He's celebrated ihud dinners. He's celebrated multiple Muslim holidays in the White House. He has refused to meet with Christian leaders. So I don't believe he is a Muslim. But I do believe he's a Muslim sympathizer. And ultimately, my Bible says there's only one way to get to heaven. And right now, this nation, though we are fast losing ground, is still a predominantly Christian nation. We are also the most powerful nation on earth. But we are no longer the most powerful economy on earth. So what happens? A whole bunch of us disappear. Maybe half of us. All of a sudden, well, we need all those people that don't believe in Jesus. Somebody's got to fill in the backside of all those job opportunities because you all get raptured. Your position is going to be open. Your house is going to be vacant. There's going to be nobody to drive your car. So we just all join together, one big happy family. We're going to need somebody to, to govern that. Interestingly enough, that the Club of Rome has a think tank. The Club of Rome is, in essence, a group of leaders from the European Union who gather together typically on an annual basis and discuss world events. Revelation chapter 17 calls them the woman who rides the beast. I just call them what they are, the Club of Rome. The Club of Rome's current stance on world governance is guess how many divisions? Ten. That is exactly what they are talking about right now. So you know what? We'll just divide the whole globe up into ten sections. And they'll be in essence like a sub-principle, if you will, or some kind of a, a governor that will preside over that region. That is exactly what your Bible says will happen in Daniel and what your Bible says will happen in the book of Revelation. Ten nation states, if you will. Ten regional states. 
that will have a voice. And out of those, three will be plucked out. Those three will disappear. We're now down to seven. From between those will come exactly one. And that one will be speaking and seeing with human eyes and speaking pompous words. Uh, to me, this is nothing more than, than a reiteration of what we know what's, that's found in the book of Revelation. I, I believe that that great harlot will rise up. I believe that the science of the time says that right now uh, the EU is the most viable currency in the world. It's stronger than the dollar still to this day, even with the problems that are there. I think the capacity for the U.S. to recover from this current, uh, I will say, depression. I don't think it's a recession. I think it's a depression. We just don't want to call it that. But when you, you spend more money than you actually make, um, that's usually a very bad thing and doesn't last very long. And I can prove that to you. Try doing it at your home. Make $5,000, spend six, see how long you last. Not good. It's what the U.S. has been doing for about 47 years now, give or take a couple. But what's happening in the EU is they've recognized the problem. They said, we have a problem. We're going to have to take away some of these rights that everyone has. And so we already see in the European Union, you, you, you get old in the European Union, you better have money to go someplace else to get medical care. Because it's just like you get to go to, you know, Aunt Uncle Sven's camp and spend a few weeks there and mysteriously you disappear. I don't know. But the bottom line is they've figured it out. You can't continue to keep people alive forever. You need to have some kind of human value, otherwise you're not valuable. These are very European Union type things that are occurring right now. European super state, I, I believe, is going to be involved in solving the world's problems. Our current president is a globalist to the core. He has sold us out the window, out the door, over the hill to grandmother's house. We have gone. He has kowtowed, bowed down, basically apologized to the entire world for the fact that, that we are superior to the rest of the world. And anybody that doesn't understand, the United States of America is superior to the rest of the world in every shape, form, and fashion is just not a realist. We are the most superior military power on earth. We have the most viable economy on earth. We have the highest standard of living. That's why people want to move here. How many people have you seen moving to northern Mexico from California? Uh, the answer would be none. Zero. How many people move from here to go make a name for themselves in China? Well, there's six of them. The bottom line is people want to come here, and they want to come here for one very simple reason. We actually have human freedom. Uh, you, you can still in this country function as an individual. We are a blessed people, but our current president is a globalist. And he says, you know what, we need to apologize to everybody else. We need to get with the program. We need to join in this giant global venture of becoming a single entity. Your Bible says that is the mark of the very last days. That if and when that actually happens, that the end is like that close.
Add to that what is happening currently in Iran, between Iran and Israel. What's going on in the Middle East in general. I don't know if you guys saw the gun camera footage of that very superior F-16 that we sold the Israelis shooting down that Iranian-made drone. Just thought it'd brag a little bit. Iran wants to, to wipe them out. My Bible says that in the very last days that most of the Arab nations of the world are going to join together in conjunction with Russia. Where do you think Iran got most of its military design? Uh, Russia. Where it got all of its current technology for its missile defense systems? Russia. Who is selling it its nuclear fuel? Uh, Russia. Where does it send most of its oil? Uh, Russia. When you start to put all those things together, in the very last days, Daniel saw it before John saw it. Daniel said there would be a beast that would rise up out of the sea of humanity, that would have parts of all of the world empires, that would be predominantly ruled by Rome, that would have in it the ability to control, in essence, the sea, because this great beast would be part of all of it, not just one region like Babylon, or one region like Media Persia, or one region like Greece, or one region as big as it was like Rome, but rather all of those regions joined together. And that there would be one that would come out of it, they would begin to speak for the whole enchilada. We get to him next week. The little horn. Rome has risen and fallen, but it's going to rise again. It's coming back. Crazy book. Crazier times. Good news is, we are going to be here. I'm planning on exiting stage left when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ rise, and we who are alive and remain meet him in the air. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Keep that in view as we see these things begin to unfold in our world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even though we have a glimpse of what lies ahead, Lord, as surely as these other kingdoms have arisen and fallen, as surely as Nebuchadnezzar, as this passage says, stood on his two feet and was given the heart of a man, Lord, that he actually became one of your kids. Uh, Lord, we also believe that your desire for all men is to be saved and come to the knowledge of repentance. And so, Lord, uh, these things should scare those who don't know you. But they should be an encouragement to us that your word is true. And they should be a challenge to us that time is short. And so, God, we pray that you would speak these truths into our lives each day as we read the paper and watch television, as we vote our values. God, we pray that you would impress upon us the truth of your word. For we know that one day out of the sea of humanity, a global community will unfold. And, God, the whole world will bow down to its ruler and we know that one day you're going to come back and wipe that empire out. Lord, that you will come and establish a kingdom of righteousness that will last for all eternity. And so, Lord, we bless you for your word. We thank you for it. We pray that you would speak to us constantly throughout our day, throughout our week. Lord, instruct us by your spirit. Lord, help us to live lives that are pleasing to you. 
Cause us to seek out the lost and offer the gospel as that way of escape. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, next week, the little horn. Because you know what? The Greeks are gone, the Medes are gone, the Romans are gone, but the little horn is coming.